we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. John Ramsey was born in Nebraska on December 7th, 1943. Go Huskers! Yeah, he was born the same day Pearl Harbor was bombed. His father was a decorated World War II pilot, and John himself would go on to join the Navy as a civil engineer, corps officer after college. His family moved to Michigan at the end of his sixth grade year, and he later attended Michigan State University, graduating in 1966, the same year that he joined the Navy. Later, he ultimately obtained a master's in business from MSU in 1971 and would go on to have quite a successful business career. John worked on the business side of some tech companies. And remember, this is in the 80s and then in the 90s. So he really was in the right business at the right point in history. In 89, he formed a company called Access Graphics, which became a subsidiary of a little company you might have heard of called Lockheed Martin in 1991. Damn, go on. While John was at college for his undergrad degree, he met a woman named Lucinda Lou Pash. Lucinda was an elementary education major. One of John's friends has described her as a short, pretty brunette who was quiet. The two were married in 1966. Wait, ain't that the same year that he graduated college and went in the Navy? It sure was. Well, nothing better you can do the year you get married than to go into the military and get the hell out of there. <laughs> John and Lucinda ended up having three children together, Elizabeth, Melinda, and John Andrew. But ultimately, they divorced in 1978, and as best as I can tell, they've managed to keep those details pretty private and to maintain an amicable relationship. That's a freaking miracle if you can do that, so they're doing something right. John met a woman named Patricia Ann Paul, who went by Patsy while they were both living in Atlanta. More on that in a moment. Now, Patsy was born and raised in Parkersburg, West Virginia. She was born on December 29, 1956. She attended West Virginia University and majored in journalism. During her sophomore year, she was crowned Miss West Virginia, winning a trip to Atlantic City, New Jersey, for the 1977 Miss America contest. Oh, dear. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, New Jersey's an armpit, and, and I've talked to people from there that say the same thing. But anyway... How did she do in the Miss America contest? Unfortunately for her, she didn't make it out of the first round. Well, that's okay. I never got to the first round at all. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you have a face for radio. Right. Uh, her sister, Pamela Ellen Paul, also won the Miss West Virginia title in 1980. So I guess it just kind of runs in the family. Out After graduating from WVU, Patsy moved to Atlanta, where she met John. They married in 1980. Patsy was 23 at the time, and John was 37. And Patsy worked as a secretary at his fledgling computer company at the time. But like I said, he was in the right business at the right time, and his business flourished. After a little while of commuting from Georgia to the company's new base in Colorado, the Ramseys moved to Boulder in 1991 with their two young children, Burke and Jean Bonnet. Burke was born in 87, and then Jean Bonnet came along in 1990. What do you think of that commute, Bob? Atlanta to Boulder, Colorado? Yeah, no, I don't think I'd be digging that. I mean, I'm sure when you're taking, you know, planes and charter and all that, it's probably not quite as bad, but uh, sure, I, I'm sure that's not so fun. Now, John has said that the thing that prompted him to move was actually Burke telling one of his teachers 
that he lived with his mom in Atlanta, but that his dad lived in Colorado. When that happened, John decided it was time to pack up the fam and move to Boulder. I'm sure that's what the kids feel like in the situation where you got dad working like five stay halfway across the country. The kids' perspective probably was that mom lives here and dad lives there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's what was that show that used to be on TV is like kids say the darnest things, but re- realistically, I mean, right. they, they just call it like they see it. So right. uh, I'm sure that was pretty accurate. Now, in 1992, Patsy was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She would win this cancer battle, and it influenced her in many ways, as I'm sure that sort of thing has impacted so many people. Patsy said that it influenced her desire to connect with John Bonet, appreciating that life is fleeting and wanting to make the most of her time, keenly aware that cancer often returns and she might not win the next battle in the war for her life. But 1992 was a tragic year for even another reason. Remember John's oldest daughter, Elizabeth, from his first marriage. She went by the name Beth. Uh, At this point, she was a 22-year-old airline stewardess. And in January of 92, she was a passenger in her boyfriend's BMW. They were driving in some bad weather in Chicago when they were in an accident, and Beth died. But unfortunately, this wouldn't be the last tragic loss in the Ramsey family. Daggone. Born on August 6, 1990, John Bonet Patricia Ramsey has always been favorably described by those who knew her. Her first name is a combination of John's first and middle names, John Bennett, and her mother's name was used for her middle name. So... John Bonet Patricia Ramsey. She was a kindergartner at High Peaks Elementary School in Boulder. John Bonet also competed, and not like the sort of for funsies who really cares, but like really seriously competed in child beauty pageants. Now remember, Patsy was a legitimate beauty queen, as was her sister. So when John Bonet showed some interest in this, in the pageants her mom had done, and that sort of thing, you can understand why Patsy was excited to have an area where she could really bond with her daughter. In the book, The Death of Innocence, Patsy wrote, quote, I decided if this was what she liked to do, then I would see if I could make it possible. I always worried that my cancer would return someday, so I was glad to have found an activity that we could have fun with together. What a foreshadowing statement. These pageants weren't taken lightly. I'm, I'm talking custom outfits, makeup, hair extensions, and hey, Bob, do you know what flippers are? I, I didn't know until I was researching this case. Do you have any idea what those are? Uh, as you, in a beauty pageant, I don't, I don't think they're the kind of flippers I'm thinking of. I know of like two kinds the kinds that you wear in the, in the water, like to swim. And then there's what I've heard described as a flippers, like, you know, when somebody had, doesn't have a thumb and the, you know, the hand is kind of, and I think it was Ron White described it as a flipper. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, uh, <laughs> that's not the kind of flippers we're talking about. So flippers are for your teeth. Because, you know, when you're six, um, as a normal six-year-old child, you you got some teeth falling out because you're losing your baby teeth and you're getting, you know, your grown-up teeth are coming in. But but heaven forbid that you be in a beauty pageant and have, you know, a hole where a tooth should be. So they get these custom, uh, these teeth essentially that go in front. That's why all those those little, you know, uh, whatever tiaras and they've got the... uh, the teeth that look more perfect than, than my teeth. Well, I'll be dipped. I always wondered how them little kids on them shows, any kind of shows like that, always have, just like you said, perfect teeth, like better than adults when, yeah, when I was a kid, I had two teeth going two different directions. Right. So these kids have these flippers, you know, you learn something that they would wear for the, the pageants and it would make their teeth look like perfect. 
Now, at only six years old, John Bonet had already won the titles of America's Royal Miss, Little Miss Charlevoix, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All Star Kids Cover Girl, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. Damn. Her participation in these pageants would be heavily scrutinized by the entire world thanks to the media's fixation with images of John Bonet's glamour shots and pageant footage. Now, I don't want to get off on a tangent too much here, but I, I think we just have to kind of, you know, say a little something about the fact that, you know, there's these child beauty pageants and, and that sort of thing. Because this was such an area or, or an area that the media made kind of just they exploited, frankly, um, you know, on the covers of all these magazines and all of the news coverage, you rarely saw a picture of this six-year-old girl who was a six-year-old kindergartner playing, you know, with her friends or with her toys. And instead you saw these uh, glamour shots that had been sold and leaked to the media from various sources. Well, if I think about like all the pictures that exist of me, and if I had to pick a picture to send to somebody, I don't have a whole lot to pick through. I mean, you know, I got some in my twenties when I'm face down in the yard after a long night or whatever, that one mug shot and whatnot. But if you if for this little girl, there's there's actually some very nice pictures out there, like professional that you could use. So why not? And I don't know where I stand on this whole beauty pageant thing. I mean, one side of it, I get it like the exploitation and women are definitely more than looks in their body. Uh, and and I agree with all that. But on the other hand, like when I hear the story about Patsy and John Bonet, it makes me think like they connected about something they liked. And well, then did did John Bonet really like it? Well, Little girls do like to play dress up and beauty pageants and dress up are kind of a thing that are, are, are fun for little girls. And I don't know, maybe little boys, but mostly little girls. So I can see where that would, you know, maybe, maybe it is just a fun, enjoyable thing. And you got a mom here really clutching to make sure she makes the most of every minute because she thinks her clock is ticking, not realizing that it's John Bonet's time that's so limited because who would have thought? So I don't know. I don't want to get too judgy on that personally. Mm -hmm. I see both sides. Yeah. And you raise a good point about um, John Bonet. A, a lot of people have said that, you know, while she, she was kind of just this, you know, sweet, uh, innocent. I mean, she's six years old. So, you're, you know, there aren't too many six-year-olds who are uh, terrible people. Um, but, you know, she's just all around kind of like a good kid to be around, kind of had a, a tender soul, a sweetheart. Um but then they, they talk about how, you know, when she got on the stage or she was performing and it wasn't even just in these beauty pageants, you know, she did performances where she would sing or whatever at the mall and stuff like that. Uh, apparently she really did seem to enjoy it. Now, I, you know, I haven't talked to her specifically, so I can't say that, but there, there are all these accounts of people who said, yeah, you know, it seemed like she enjoyed being kind of in the spotlight and being on stage and sharing, you know, a talent or singing or whatever with people and just kind of lighting up the room that way. She so, wasn't being forced into it by a parent that was living vicariously or something. It, it didn't seem that way. Now, I think, of course, that's uh, it's where our head can tend to go. And and I think the way the media portrayed some of this case, it was kind of easy to, to think that way. Uh, and I'm not willing to sit here and say 100%. Certainly that wasn't at all what was happening, but it, it, it doesn't, it seems like there is at least evidence that she, she did enjoy that sort of like, like you said, kind of like dressing up and wearing these nice outfits and singing and doing these things. But, you know, the flip side of that is uh, there are certainly a lot of reasons that child beauty pageants, you know, the, the people that they attract who are awful people. And I mean that by the people who are like sick, twisted individuals who are into looking at uh, children in a way that's inappropriate. 
Um, it, there are some some dangers, risks, and downfalls certainly associated with it all. So. Well, heck yeah, but if you also, you had said about how seriously these things are taken and how seriously Patsy and John Bonet took them, if you look past the surface, it's much more than just looking pretty. Like, there's a lot that uh, that a child would have to learn and practice and have some kind of skill. And I don't think we would be upset if a six-year-old was a, a dedicated and talented violinist or a six-year-old was crazy obsessed with baseball and already, you know, playing very well and spending a lot of time in that. So if this was her thing, let her have her thing. Yeah, that's a good place to, to kind of turn the page and get to the next part. So- All right, just tell me, shut the hell up. <laughs> Beauty pageants with Bob. <laughs> now, turning to Christmas Day, 1996. Do you, do you remember 1996, or is that kind of blurry for you? Um, you were. Yo, I don't want to. I don't want to out you, but uh, I feel I like... was old enough to know better. But I <laughs> probably still too young to care. Uh, 96. That, that that was a tough. That was a tough time. That's we were losing Tupac and and Biggie right around there. And yeah, right. So in addition to Biggie and Tupac. Uh, Christmas Day 96, John Bonet was six years old. She had turned six that August. She got a bike for Christmas. And I don't know about you, but as a kid, that was one of those Christmases. That was a big deal when you got a bike. Right. I mean, that is the quintessential Christmas gift. Yeah. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what your background is. Like a bike is a cool Christmas gift. That's better than a BB gun for most people. For, yeah, for sure. Uh, there is a picture of her from that morning. It's one of the last pictures that would be taken of her alive. And she is beaming. By all accounts, it was a normal, happy Christmas day in Boulder. Now, it's worth noting that by this point, John is doing very well in business. This is no longer a fledgling technology business. You know, it's 96. I'm pretty sure by then the internet was doing its thing. You've got mail was real and all that kind of stuff. He is worth upwards of several million dollars at this point. I I've seen and heard somewhere, you know, five, six, seven million dollars. Money is not an issue for the Ramsey family. Uh, Patsy doesn't work, but she's involved in the community, caring for the kids, and of course, uh, helping John Bonet with the pageants and that kind of stuff. To illustrate the kind of life that the Ramseys were living at this point, the house that they owned back in 96 went on the market in early 2023, and it was listed for $6.95 million. It is a five-bedroom house with over 7,000 square feet. Well, that's enough where you can live in there and not see the people you live with for a couple of days. I mean, who, I need something like that. <laughs> who doesn't want that? I'm pretty sure that's about mm, seven times the size of any house we, we grew up in. Right. Uh, now there's anything wrong with that. It's just it's trying to paint a picture for you here. When you're picturing, when you're doing the mental picture of the house that we're in, it's important to note that this isn't a, uh, this isn't a single wide and it's not a, a thousand square foot rancher that many of us are used to and familiar with and currently living in. That's um, probably the size of one of the trailers and seven of the apartments that I grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, the listing actually describes the house like this, quote, stately and modernized 1920s Tudor estate in an epic boulder location on three lots, stunning curb appeal with amazing flat iron views surrounded by luxury homes, a beautiful stroll to Pearl Street shops, restaurants, CU and easy access to Denver, an impressive boulder estate with timeless appeal in an unbeatable location. Now, the Ramseys didn't pay $7 million for it. They bought it for uh, $500,000 in 1991, but that number adjusted for inflation only uh, would be about $1.1 million today. After spending Christmas morning and the afternoon together opening presents and hanging out at their house, the Ramseys, this is John, Patsy, Burke, and John Bonet, 
went over to the Fleet and Priscilla White house for Christmas dinner, and this was around 5 p.m. that day. The Whites were close friends to the Ramseys. Fleet was a top executive for an oil company, and so they were living similar lifestyles, and they got along well. Their families meshed pretty well. This man, there's a man named Fleet. That's yeah, his name. Yeah. I, you know, when I first started listening to stuff about this case a while back and researching it, a couple of things I listened to the way that the person was talking, I thought his name was Flea, like the bug, uh, or like the drummer from, uh, oh, is that Red Hot Chili Peppers? Oh, I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I thought it was Flea. And then I realized it was Fleet. And then I thought, who names their child? No, no disrespect, Mr. Fleet. Uh, I'm sure there's probably a reason that your name is Fleet, but it is uh, one I have not heard before. So okay. anyway. Yeah, it is Fleet, F-L-E-E-T, Fleet. So they're, li they're living similar lifestyles, and uh, the Ramses and, and uh, the Whites, they both have um, daughters that are the same age, and uh, they have sons who are older. I don't think Burke and the, the Whites' son was the exact same age, but they're, they're kind of close, so uh, they just kind of meshed really well. Around 9 o'clock that night, this is Christmas night, the Ramses left the Whites and delivered presents to some other friends on their way back home. The Ramses arrived at their house around 9.30 that night. According to John and Patsy, John Bonet had fallen asleep in the car, which is understandable. You know, Christmas Day, I think I fell asleep uh, in the car on the way home, all the Christmas activities on a regular basis. So John carried her upstairs, and Patsy got her ready for bed. John and Burke then worked on a toy that Burke had received for Christmas. They were kind of putting it together, and, and you know, he was, I mean, you imagine a nine-year-old, right? He's wanting to play with his stuff and put it together and all that. But no, you got to get in the car and get drug all over Hell's Half Acre by your parents and see a bunch of daggone people that you don't even care about and eat some crappy food. Wait 12 hours before you can get home and put the damn thing together and actually play with it. I think we just unlocked <laughs> some repressed trauma. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So uh, around 10 o'clock, John, Patsy, and Burke then went to bed. Now, let me stop here for a moment because I want to come back to the house again. Remember, we're talking about a house that's over 7,000 square feet. Uh, there are three stories and a basement. So you got a basement and then level one, level two, level three. Uh, the entire third story belongs to John and Patsy. It's like they live in, uh, you know, the penthouse of this <laughs> apartment building, so to speak. Um, there are two staircases on that level, one that goes only to the second floor that's outside their bedroom, uh, and then one that goes to the second and first floors that's actually located inside their bedroom. And their bedroom is uh, all the way on like the eastmost side of the house. There are two bathrooms, a closet, a dressing room, and a fireplace. So their floor is basically bigger than most people's houses, apartments, whatever. I mean, this is a it's a pretty sweet setup, and it's fairly large. Now, the second story is clearly, this is like the kid's level. Remember that John had had three children from his first marriage, but Beth had passed in 92. So now uh, there, there are four children total, and there are four bedrooms on the second floor. However, at this point during this time, the, the kids weren't there from the first marriage. So they're not in the house, but they still had rooms in the house, but they're empty at, at this point this point. Burke's bedroom is on the easternmost side of the residence. So it's like directly underneath of John and Patsy's bedroom on the third floor. As you move west from Burke's bedroom next to his, there's John Andrew's room and there's a bathroom kind of across the hall from it. Then you go a little further and there's a pretty good sized playroom that's probably the size of at least like two of these bedrooms. Then there's a little bit of a hallway and you kind of go uh, a little bit of an angle and you go a little further. And then there's John Bonet's bedroom. And the only other rooms 
between the westernmost side of the house and John Bonet's bedroom are two bathrooms. One that opens into her bedroom and then another one that's, you know, up against it, but opens out to Melinda's bedroom, which is on the other side. So really you just have these small bathrooms that are in between John Bonet's room and the other side of the house. Essentially what I'm trying to say is you have Burke's bedroom all the way against the easternmost side under John and Patsy's bedroom. And then on Almost as far away as you can get on the opposite side of the house. That's where John Bonet's bedroom is. And then the second floor has three staircases. One that goes to the first and third floors. This is right outside Burke's door, like literally right outside his bedroom. Another that only goes to the third floor. And this one is in the hallway around the corner from John Bonet's bedroom. So it's not too far away, but it's not like right there. And then there's another staircase. This is the spiral staircase. That's what we'll call it. That one only goes to the first floor, so it connects the second and first floor, and it's the closest one to uh, John Bonet's bedroom door, and it's basically like right outside her bedroom door. That was a whole lot to follow. You got me lost, and I've seen a blueprint before. So what you're trying to say is this a big old house with a lot of rooms and a lot of floors, and these people are all pretty well separated, and like I said, this is a house you could live in with somebody else and not see them for a couple days. Is that what we're saying? Basically, yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, and thanks for clarifying. We'll have to add uh, some shots of these floor plans on our socials. So if you want to check those out. And also just to point out that it's not like John and Patsy's bedroom is on the same floor right next to John Vinay's and, and Burke's isn't right beside John. Like nobody's bedroom or nobody really is right next to John Bonet. Like there's a good bit of distance, particularly if we're looking at the parents. I mean, they're up a level and on the other side of the house. Um, in this huge mansion of a house. So you're exactly right. Now, the next morning, December 26th, is the day after Christmas, sometime around 5.30, 5.40, 5.45, sometime there in the morning, John and Patsy wake up. They're up early, and the family had plans to take a plane to Michigan. They had a busy calendar the next few days, linking up with John's other children, and then they had plans to go on a cruise. And so uh, they were going to go up to Michigan where John, you know, had been from and all that. And they had a place up there. So they had all these plans, these Christmas plans. Wait a minute. They've been gone all day on Christmas. Again, all over Hell's Half Acre seeing all these damn people. Burke didn't, didn't get to play with this shit until he got home at 930 at night and then had to go to bed at 10. And now we're getting up at 530 a.m. the next morning and he's getting in a plane and going some damn where else. Like, when is he going to get to mess with his Christmas stuff? This kid's getting screwed. <laughs> so John showered and Patsy went downstairs. Once she got downstairs, Patsy found three sheets of paper lying on that spiral staircase. Remember, the spiral staircase is this one that goes, you know, it's closest staircase to John Bonet's bedroom on the second floor, and it only links up the second and first floors. And so she finds these three sheets of paper. And the pages have handwriting that's written in black Sharpie. And it looked like some kind of a letter. She began to read what was written and then screamed to John after she read, We have your daughter. Oh, shit. Patsy checked John Bonet's room and found that she was not in there. She was missing. Both John and Patsy looked in Burke's room and he was still asleep. So they didn't wake Burke and they went back downstairs. And Patsy, at 5.52 a.m., called 911 to report a kidnapping. Even though the note said John Bonet would be killed if the police were notified. Now, at the end of the call, it's still connected for a little bit, even though it seems like maybe Patsy thought that she had hung up the phone. And if you've been around as long as we have, you know that back in the day, there used to be these phones that you would hang up. And if you didn't put the phone on the receiver just right, maybe it would kind of sit on there, but it wouldn't actually end the call. And so, you know, if you're talking like, you know, you get done with somebody and then you're like, oh, yeah, 
uh, talk to you later, Bob. And then you hang it up and you don't, you're like, man, I can't stand my brother. He sucks. Uh, he might hear what you said. And so this portion of the 911 call has been scrutinized and discussed. So here's a clip of what that audio sounds like without anything being done to it. No enhancements. Okay, now here it is after it's been enhanced by professionals to try to determine what, if anything, anybody says in the background. So take a listen and see if you can understand whether anybody's saying anything here. In this episode, we don't want to get too much into theories or what anybody has thought or anything like that. We really just want to kind of lay out what happened, what we know happened, or what we have a really, really good basis to say took place. And we'll get into theories and we'll get into speculation and we'll get into what people have said certain things mean and how they interpret some of the evidence in the next part or parts of this case. All right. I'm not going to get ahead of you on this, this whole thing about the phone call or whatever, but I just have one question. Did anybody try and play it backward? They did. And when they did, it said, Bob is still mad that he had to go to somebody's house on Christmas and didn't get to play with his toys. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, after calling 911, Patsy called family friends, the Whites and another couple, John and Barbara Freeney. This is, I mean, like immediately after she calls 911, she hangs up within minutes. She's calling these, these close friends of the family. Their family minister is also called, and all of these people are asked to come to the Ramsey house for an emergency. By 6 a.m., the first police officers arrive. So this is, you know, less than 10 minutes after the 911 call. There's some police officers at the house. Richard French and Carl Veitch arrive at the Ramsey house and they were shown the ransom note and told by John Ramsey that the doors and windows had been secured the night before. Officer French reported that John was pacing while Patsy watched behind splayed fingers and that Patsy was wearing fresh makeup and the clothes she had worn to dinner at the Whites the night before. Officer French also searched the interior of the home, including the basement for possible entry points for an intruder. He determined that, that he didn't find any evidence that there had been forced entry. And by the end of the day, they had figured out that at least one door and six windows were unsecured. So even though uh, John had thought that, you know, everything was locked up before they went to bed, that didn't seem to be the case according to what the police found once they searched. There's a lot of doors and windows in that house. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine how many freaking doors and windows there Plus, are. if you got kids, it'd be real easy to not know doors are unlocked or windows or whatever. Right. And I should also point out that even though, you know, this is a really nice house, fancy house, big house, and they live in a nice neighborhood and all that good stuff. And the house came with like a kind of a, you know, ADT, like the precursor. Now we have ring cameras and all that stuff. Well, this house came with a security system, but... Uh, essentially they found it to be kind of annoying, um, because, you know, you could set it off inadvertently, whatever, whatever. So they just kept it disarmed all the time and they didn't use it. Right. They were in a nice, safe neighborhood. Didn't need it, right? Absolutely. Uh, or at least so they thought. Sergeant Paul Reichenbach arrived at the house around 6 a.m. as well and searched the exterior of the house and the yard. Now Fleet and his wife, Priscilla White, also arrived around 6 a.m. In a deposition, Fleet White has said uh, that he went to the Ramsey basement within 10 to 15 minutes of arriving at the house that morning, that he searched around the house, including the basement, and uh, he didn't find anything that stood out to him. Around this time, John Freeney shows up as well. And about 7 a.m., Reverend Roll, that's R-O-L, Hoverstock, the family's minister, arrived at the Ramsey home. 
John Ramsey and Fleet White also wake up Burke around this time, around 7 a.m. Fleet and John Fernie then took Burke to the Fernie's house, picked up the Fernie children, and drove everybody back to the White's house. And the men dropped off all of these kids with some house guests that were staying at the White's place. You following me? I think so, yeah. So Burke is with the Fernie kids at the White's house. Like Clue. Yeah, and he probably didn't get to take his toys with him. I, I'm going to bet he didn't. So Fleet and Fer- Fernie get back to the Ramsey house around 7.45 a.m. Now at 8.10 a.m., the first detective arrives at the Ramsey house. Detective Linda Arndt, who was uh, you know, like a sex crimes investigator, uh, did that kind of stuff. She's first briefed by Sergeant Reichenbach about the exterior search. Now, from 8.10 to about 1 o'clock, Detective Art monitored incoming calls, and they're monitoring calls because the ransom note had stated that the kidnappers would contact John Ramsey between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., but 8 a.m. came, 10 a.m. went, and there were no phone calls from any kidnappers. At some point during the morning, John had called a banker friend, a, a guy named Rod Westmoreland, in Atlanta, which, remember, that's kind of where they came from and had these connections to arrange for the ransom money to to be um, ready to go in the requested denominations, all this stuff, so that, you know, once the, the kidnappers called, you know, he had the money, he could get it and, and make it happen. Around 9.30, Sergeant Bob Whitson arrived. He discovered what was thought to be pry marks on the rear kitchen door in the house, but it was later determined that an old lock had fallen off and, and these marks only resembled pry marks. And around 10.30, detectives get John Bonet's bedroom sealed off as a crime scene. Uh, Detective Patterson left the house and went to the Whites to interview Burke because this hadn't been done yet. Now, probably worth noting here that that's 1030. So, you know, the first police officers got there at six. So for four and a half hours, it seems that her bedroom was not marked off as a crime scene. Okay. Uh, Now, once Patterson leaves around 1030, Detective Art was the only official left in the house at that point. And, And in her report, Detective Art wrote that between 1030 and noon, John had left the house to go pick up family mail. Now, at one o'clock, Detective Art asked John Ramsey to search the house from top to bottom, looking for anything out of order that could be helpful to the investigation. You got any thoughts about that, Bob? I know we're not speculating much, but uh, I just want your hot take on that. That probably should have been like one of the first things to happen in my mind with the first arriving officers. I mean, I'm not a cop, but that would be the first, one of the first things to know is like, if you've got a ransom note and a missing kid, all right, would anything here not look right to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, um, no, I don't want to get into it too much. So we'll just keep on going. So John takes old fleet with him and they go to the basement. They go to start this search for clues in the basement. Wait, you said top to bottom and they're starting in the bottom. Well, that phrase, turn of phrase, right? Top to bottom. And, and then, yeah, that's a good point. So whatever. Okay. They're going bottom to top. They decide to flip the script and they start in the basement. Or maybe their thinking was everybody's been running around the top three floors. You know, if you're asking us to go with a fine tooth comb, I don't think anybody's been to the basement yet. These are all great points that we're, we're probably get into in more detail in uh, the next part. All right. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're always thinking ahead. I like it. So it's worth noting here that Detective Arndt has said that John was pacing and he seemed pretty worked up. Like he was just kind of, as you, as you might imagine, right? Your, your daughter's missing and. Uh, I know I would probably have some trouble sitting still and not being a crazy mess. Uh, not that he was a crazy mess, but he was pacing back and forth and just kind of seemed like he needed something to do. Yeah, I'd be a crazy mess. So she wanted to give him something to keep him busy. And that was her thinking behind sending him to look for evidence. Okay. All right. So in the basement, John goes to this room that they all refer to as the wine cellar. Now there's no wine in there. There's also no windows. It's actually a very dark room. 
This is a room that Fleet had opened the door to and looked in earlier that morning around 6.15 when he first arrived at the house, but uh, he couldn't find the light in the room and it was very dark. And in the dark, he said he couldn't see anything. He didn't really want to go in there, which I mean, I, I can't really blame him if it's a creepy dark basement cellar room thing and you can't see anything. I probably wouldn't go traipsing around in there um, in the dark myself. So he just closed the door and left the room. Now, John opens the door. Again, this is around one o'clock and says after opening the door, oh God, and then turns the light on. Fleet noted that John said, uh, oh God, before he turned the light on. And John doesn't dispute this. Now on the floor in the middle of the room was a white blanket covering John Bonet's body. She had black duct tape over her mouth, and John immediately took it off. She had white paracord tied around her wrists. The same type of rope was also around her neck, attached to a garrote that had been fashioned using a broken wooden paintbrush handle. It's about 1.03 when Detective Arndt says that she heard and saw Fleet in the den area crouched by the phone calling for an ambulance. Just a moment later, Arndt saw John bring John Bonet's body up the stairs of the basement. She noted that she could tell rigor mortis had set in. I mean, I hate to be critical of the police, but this is why you walk with them around the house when you say, go see if, take me around and show me if anything's out of place. And this is why you go with them so that if something that is evidence is found. you like, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that next episode. But, but I, 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 but I, I understand it. what you were saying about she really didn't think they were going to find anything. She just felt like he needed to be given a, a, a job and. Busy work. Yeah, right. Right. And so then she was probably just shocked as could be. Yeah. Like triple shocked at the events then. Okay, go ahead. For sure. Sorry. That's okay. So John Bonet was wearing a white knit shirt with a sequin silver star on the front and white long johns. And John placed her body on the floor. And and then Detective Art moved John Bonet's body again, placing it next to the Christmas tree in the living room. A sheet was placed over her body, I believe by John, and later there was a Colorado avalanche sweater that was kind of put over some of the, I think maybe her feet or her legs, some part that was still kind of sticking out. Around 1.30, detectives overheard John Ramsey calling Mike Archuleta, a private pilot that you know, Ramsey had used a good bit. Ramsey told Archuleta, she's gone, they killed her, and Ramsey also told him to ready a plane for a flight to Atlanta that evening. This is all according to officers. Officers told John he couldn't leave. So you can't go anywhere. Like, this is no, like you have to stay here. Around 145, the Ramseys were allowed to leave their house and to go stay with the Fernies. Basically, given that, you know, their daughter was just found murdered, they didn't really want to be there anymore. And so they went over to the Fernies, the family friends, where they were joined by some other folks. Uh, I think John Bonet's pediatrician came over and there was an attorney friend of the Ramseys who came. So they were there. And then around 820 that night, John Bonet's body was taken into custody by the coroner's office. At 10.45, the body was taken to Boulder Community Hospital. Around 8.15 the next morning, an autopsy was performed. Now, Bob, uh, I've, I've read the autopsy, and I can read a lot of these words, and I can figure out what they mean, but um, I can't say probably about two-thirds of them. So I'm, I'm going to be leaning on you and looking for your help here in, in getting through some of this details from the autopsy, because it's important in understanding the facts of the case and what we know happened, um, there are very few things that are well, more factual than some of the medical findings from the autopsy report. So turning to that, uh, you, you want to just kind of take us through this thing, kind of 
highlight the important parts kind of piece by piece? Well, I think the main thing of this thing is, damn, it was hard to read. You know, I've, I've seen my share of dead bodies and body parts and pieces and people in various states of life, death, and decay and seen autopsies and whatnot. But this, this is this hard to read when you're talking about this six-year-old little girl and the medical examiner does an outstanding job, in my opinion, of painting a picture with words and carefully describing in detail everything very precisely in a way that you you really, when the medical examiner talks about the the bindings on the little girl's wrist, like you can, you can in your mind's eye see these little six-year-old hands and arms, and mm. it's pretty, it, it's tough. Yeah, and before you jump into the medical stuff, just I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think sometimes in the true crime genre, you know, we get the desensitized, we get the gallows humor so that we can deal with this stuff. It, whether you work in it, you're adjacent to it or whatever. It, even with that, though, there are times where you, you're kind of looking at something, working on something, and it hits you a little bit differently. And for me, I, as I was reading this autopsy report, there's this one part where the, the uh, medical examiner says, and I'm just going to read it from the report. It's not very long, but it says the decedent is clothed in a long sleeved white knit collarless shirt, the mid anterior chest area of which contains an embroidered silver star decorated with silver sequins. Now, I don't know why that just really kind of drove home in my mind as I was going through this, just how you know, the, the way kids dress and here's this absolutely innocent little six-year-old girl in, you know, your typical cute Christmas sequin sweater shirt. And to read that in the midst of the rest of what's contained in this autopsy report, it's a lot. Yeah. For me, it was, like I said, it was the binding of the wrist that it just painted such a picture. I could just see these little girl's arms and hands and little fingers and yeah, yeah, just makes you sick. All right, let's start with the final diagnosis because that's one of the first items in the report and uh, we don't want to get too far into the details on this one because they're just very disturbing. But the final diagnosis is ligature strangulation. So that means being strangled by something other than the hands. The rope accord, something like that. And what about this uh, part two under that final diagnosis there? Uh, I'm not even going to try to say that word. The next item is craniocerebral injuries, and that means a head injury, injury to the skull and to the brain. So yeah, there was contusion to the scalp, commuted fracture, the right side of the skull, contusions to the right cerebral hemisphere that's like on the brain itself. And then subarachnoid and subdural hemorrhage. So that means there was bleeding below the arachnoid layer and the dural layer. The brain has several wrappings. There was blood in there and then small contusions at the tips of the temporal lobes. So that would be of the brain. Those parts of the brain would have been bruised. Some abrasions on the right cheek, abrasions to the left lower back and posterior left lower leg. So that's the left lower back and the back of the left lower leg, abrasion and vascular congestion with the vaginal mucosa and ligature of the right wrist. Tox was clean. There was no drugs, no alcohol involved there. And the cause of death is 
asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. All right. So let's unpack that in like people like me terms. So cause of death, the things you just said. So asphyxia, I assume that's lack of oxygen. Yeah, she was strangled and a head injury. And that, or some combination of those things, is what caused her to die. Yes. What are some things from this that that led the pathologist to determine that this wasn't something where it's like, oh, somebody tried to make it look like she was strangled and they put this device around her neck, and but really she wasn't. So how do they know, you know, from the medical evidence that, that she was actually strangled? Well, it wasn't just because there was some kind of thing wrapped around the neck. There was very clear and demarcated bruising in the area of the ligature, um, pretty much circumferentially around the neck. And bruises happen when you're alive because you're busting things, tissues that are alive and blood vessels that are alive. You have blood coming to the surface and the body trying to recover from an injury. Mark's postmortem are very different and generally quite obvious to pathologists, plus the internal damage that you would see that would be consistent. What about, okay, so in, in this final diagnosis, we have uh, petechial hemorrhages. There's a lot of talk about that in cases that involve strangulation. So can you just explain what that is and, and why that's a kind of a, a thing that uh, pathologists pick up on when they're trying to determine cause of death? Very small vessels burst because blood supply has been occluded. It's been stopped off and pressure will build up and they will pop. Petechiae appear like tiny little dots. In and of themselves, they're a nonspecific finding, but in combination with other pathophysiological evidence, they can tell you some things like contributing to a, a determination of strangulation. So we've talked about uh, this strangulation, the fact that this garrote was used um, some of the evidence that the pathologist would have looked to to determine that it was in fact strangulation that occurred and not that it was some sort of staging to make it seem like she had been strangled. But there's also uh, the stuff about the head injury. So can you talk a little bit about the size of uh, the, the injury and maybe where it was on her head where it was located? Well, one thing that the medical examiner found when they reflected the scalp, which means they do an incision from one ear, the base of the skull, around to the other side, and then peel your scalp forward over your head so that you can now see the skull. And uh, what he found under there was a hemorrhage that they describe approximately seven inches by four inches, which is a significant part of a six-year-old's head. Yeah, six-year-old head's not very big to begin with. That's a lot. It's on the right side, and it says from the temporoparietal area, extending from the orbital ridge posteriorly to the occipital area. So it's it's really on the right side, going from the front of her skull all the way to the back, seven inches by four inches. Uh, you know, the, the orbital ridge is going to be right above the eyeball, and the occiput is the back of the brain, and the, the temporal area is the front on the right and the left, and the ME is describing this as on the right side. So this is going to be a significant area of the right side. There's blood. What I'm hearing is it sounds like it's almost essentially like the entire right side of her head. There was hemorrhage on that whole right side there. Mm. She's got a fracture there that's eight and a half inches long, which is very significant. There's also an area of contusion, which is about eight inches in length and a width of uh, about an inch and three quarters. That's significant. 
Okay, so we understand that essentially cause of death is strangulation and these these head injuries that are, I mean, they sound significant and brutal. Is there anything else in the report that you think is, is noteworthy for people like us who are just trying to understand some key takeaways from? The evidence that the pathologist turned over to the police department included fibers and hair from the clothing and body surfaces, ligatures, clothing, vaginal swabs and smears, rectal swabs and smears, oral swabs and smears, paper bags that were on the hands. I'm sure we're all familiar with this. The, they would commonly put paper bags over the hands at the scene and keep them protected until evidence can be collected, such as fingernail clippings, which they did collect, jewelry, or the paper bags that were on her feet. They even sent the body bag, samples of the head, hair, eyelashes, and eyebrows, and swabs from the right and left thighs and right cheek. So a lot of different things there, inventory cataloged and kept. And I think it's important for our listeners here in the facts episode to have an idea of what kind of evidence was collected at the autopsy. Yeah, for sure. So now let's get into the ransom note. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We're a small group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence earlier deliver pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter don't particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices. And if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. 
You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.